today we are uh, con- we're actually we're concluding today is the last day of the series if my people and we have been going through a series the last couple of weeks taking just some snapshot looks at uh, some moments in the book of second chronicles that happens in the old testament it's a history book and so oftentimes the histories in the old testament Sometimes we read through them and we just kind of gloss over and think, oh, I'm so glad I'm past that. (laughs) I wish I never have to read that again. And then it comes across again in a Bible reading plan and whew, there it is. Um, And so, but the heart behind this series has really been to try to start our year off right. Um, You can go to the next slide, Richard. So the, the premise of the name of the series has been this promise from God to Solomon in 2 Chronicles 7.14, where he tells the king, after having this big dedication of the temple, he says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And that verse, it's a really inspiring verse. It's a good promise to hold on to. Oftentimes we kind of, you know, we may be prone to take it out of context sometimes. But at the same time, for us as people who follow Jesus, we believe that Jesus is God and we believe that, you know, we are Christians. We're called after his name. And so by extension, we can we can claim some of that promise. It's not the same exact thing as the people of Israel, but it, you know, we can know that our God hears us, and we can know that repentance and humility and all of that, that is, prayer is such an essential um, thing for our daily lives. You can go to the next slide. So just as a recap of where we've been in this series, our first week we talked about how God's presence makes all the difference. We looked at how when Uh, Solomon had had the temple built, everything was finished, and the last piece to put in was actually the most important piece of all the temple was the Ark of the Covenant. And so he said, hey guys, bring that up from Mount Zion. We're going to put it into the temple. They did that. And God's presence filled the temple in, in like a cloud of smoke. And it was so thick and so tangible and so there that the priests couldn't do what the priests are supposed to do. Uh, The song leader couldn't say, let's strike up a song, because it's like, I imagine they probably couldn't catch their breath. It was so overwhelming just to feel God there and to know that God was there. Um, The people who were doing the sacrifices, same thing, you know, all of that. And so in our lives, we realize God's presence makes all the difference. That's why for us as God's people called after his name, we want to start our year pursuing God in his presence. The second week, we looked at how prayer is the means by which we experience God's life-changing grace, and we actually took a look at that uh, 2 Chronicles 7 passage uh, that, you know, both the before and the after that kind of encapsulate that verse and really realizing that prayer, it's, it's a tool that God has given us to connect with Him, and that we actually receive His life-changing grace from Him 
through times like prayer. Now, there's other ways that we can experience God and experience that, but prayer specifically is a vital tool for our lives. Last week, uh, we talked about um, the, uh, oh, what was the name of it? <sighs> Process of holiness, thank you. I knew it started with a P, but it wasn't pursuit, and I was, I was playing with words there. So, loving God is a wholehearted, lifelong pursuit, and we described holiness or the pursuit of holiness as that it's something that takes a lifetime for us to kind of iron out. And we looked at the life of King Josiah, who was one of the good kings in the southern kingdom of Judah. Um, if you want more details about all of that, go back to last week's message online and you can check it out. And so um, I won't spend too much more time on review there. You can go to the next slide. Today, uh, we are, the title for today's message is Perspective and Redemption. Perspective and Redemption. Our passage is Second Chronicles 33, 1 through 13. And the big idea for today, the central truth we're, we're aiming for, is that no one is too lost that they can't be saved. No one is too lost that they can't be saved. That doesn't mean they will be saved. And it, but it does mean that they the, the, turn it around and you would say, everyone has the chance to be saved, basically. No one is too lost for that. And we're going to look at a pretty lost guy in just a few moments. You can go to the next slide. Okay, so last week we had mentioned, I'd, I'd put this map up here to give you a picture of where things were during King Josiah's time. We're actually going to go back in time, uh, uh, one chapter, <laughs> and we're going to look at Josiah's grandpa, Manasseh. So, as you look at the map, so you see that there's the, the, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah that are there, and they're surrounded by some other kingdoms as well. Now, the, by this point in history, Israel, the, the northern kingdom there, had actually been sacked by the Assyrians. They're, they're up even farther north, the Assyrian Empire. And <clears throat> as such, um, that means that they were exiled, they were plucked out, they were uh, you know, brought to Babylon and all of that. Now, but then there was the kingdom of Judah, and they were still there, but they were paying tribute to the Assyrians, which was the fancy way of a payoff of saying, hey, please don't mess with us. We'll give you whatever you want. <laughs> you know, we'll, uh, if you require this much grain, we'll give you this grain. If you require this much wine, we'll do that because we don't want to have happen what happened to Israel. And um, in my history class in high school, I learned about the Assyrian Empire. You may have as well. These were pretty bad folk. Um, it was not good. Uh, they did very terrible things, and there is good reason why the kingdom of Judah would say, please don't hurt us. <laughs> and so, uh, by this point in, in the history, though, there was a king named Hezekiah, and God had, you know, delivered uh, them in that time from the Assyrians, and uh, Hezekiah was a good king, but he had a pride issue. He was too proud whole scenario. You can read more about that on your own time. 
but Hezekiah was Manasseh's dad. And there was even a point in Hezekiah's life where Manasseh had to help kind of co-reign with Hezekiah so that they could keep the kingdom running. But now, Hez, uh, not Hezekiah, Manasseh comes to power. And what, what does that look like? Well, let's find out. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 2 Chronicles 33. I know that our, our main scope for today is just the first 13 verses, but I want us to take a look at the whole, um, the whole of Manasseh's life. This is his snapshot here in 2 Chronicles. All right, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, for he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down. And he erected altars to the Baals and made Ashtoreth and worshiped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, in Jerusalem shall my name forever be, or be forever. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of the idol that he had made, he set in the house of God, of which God said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all of the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever, and I will no more remove the foot of Israel from the land that I appointed for your fathers, if only they will be careful to do all that I have commanded them, all the law, the statutes, and the rules given through Moses. Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. Pause for just a moment. All right, you may remember, you may not, that's okay. But in the book of Exodus, when it recalls how God was going to save the people of Israel, taking them out of their slavery and bringing them into the land of promise, God was going to drive out all these wicked nations who had been doing all kinds of evil and wickedness and, and whatnot before Israel to give Israel their land. And so it's fascinating to note, just we'll get into it <laughs> in a little bit, but that Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed. That is staggering. 
All right, let's continue. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that Yahweh was God. Amen. Afterward, he built an outer wall for the city of David west of Gihon in the valley and for the entrance into the fish gate and carried it around Ophel and raised it to a very great height. He built up defenses. <laughs> uh, he also put commanders of the army in all the fortified cities in Judah, and he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside of the city. He also restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving, and he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed at the high places, but only to the Lord their God. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and his prayer to his God and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, they are in the chronicles of the kings of Israel. And his prayer and how God was moved by his entreaty and all his sin and his faithlessness and the sites on which he built high places and set up the ashram and the images before he humbled himself, behold, they are written in the chronicles of the seers, so Manasseh slept with his fathers, and they buried him in his house, and Ammon, his son, reigned in his place. Thank you for sticking with me through all of that. So no one is too lost that they can't be saved, but evil works against the knowledge of God. So you can go to the next slide. Something I notice in kind of the list the laundry list of all the things Manasseh did, and they were terrible. It reminds me of some things we find in the New Testament. In Ephesians, the Apostle Paul writes, quote, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We're talking, that's talking about demonic activity, spirits, people, you know, spirits that are, you know, uh, malignant. Is that the right term? Anyway, uh, no good. Um, and yet, they're really insidious in a lot of our culture even today, believe it or not. But we're not talking about Ephesians today, but that's just to give us a picture. Next, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul again writes, he says, for though we walk in the flesh, that is our bodies, we are not waging war according to the flesh. This is talking about prayer. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power from God to destroy strongholds. 
we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Now, it's interesting to me, uh, we're, this is all talking, that's spiritual warfare that it's talking about, it, it, but that's not the point of this message yet. I, I want to use these two references in the New Testament just to point out that these spiritual beings and this spiritual reality of darkness that Paul is talking about, that's what Manasseh devoted his life to at some point. You know, when it talks about how, oh gosh, where is it? In verse uh, verse 5, and he built altars to the host of heaven. That's talking about like the sun, moon, and stars. He, he offered up worship and sacrifice to those, quote, celestial beings, right? You know, the host of heaven, and he served them. So, he devoted his life to those, those uh, gods with a lowercase g. And then he built other altars in the house of the Lord. There was already an altar where you could offer sacrifices to Yahweh, the God of Israel, but he didn't want to do that. He built another altar to somebody else and worshiped them. Then also, it talks about how he consulted mediums, fortune-telling, omens, sorcery, and necromancers. That's a fancy word for wizards uh, or, or witches and, you know, people who do that kind of thing. Basically, this is not good. This is him consulting anyone and everyone other than God, the God of his people. He's actually consulting the gods of the people that had been driven out and, you know, trying to consult them. You can go to the next slide. This reminds me of a little sticker that I discovered when I was like five years old, and it probably had been developed way before then because I'm a young buck. But uh, there is this little sticker. Does everybody know what that guy's name is? Mr. Yuck. And why, so this is participatory in this moment. So why do things have the sticker of Mr. Yuck on them? They're poison, right? Stay away, danger, danger, don't go there, right? If that's on your food, don't touch it. And yet, what I find interesting, so that, Mr. Yuck, isn't that great? So the word for evil, I can't remember if I have a slide for this or not. Do I? Nope, nope, go back. That's okay. Go back to Mr. Yuck. There we go. So the word evil there, it's kind of, it's a broad term in Hebrew, and it can apply to a lot of different applications. But one specific one is that it's something that's repugnant, repulsive, um, uh, not good disgusting, if you will. And so, like, the idea of poison and Mr. Yuck is that it's so not good for you that it's like, ugh, why would you ever have that thing? Don't do that. Have this instead, <laughs> you know? Um, and what this makes me think of in relation to our, our passage is that Manasseh was dealing in things. It's like 
God had set up all these warning signs and even had sent prophets, which we'll talk about in a second, to say, hey, this stuff's not good for you. Don't go there. This is ugh, not good, repulsive to God. Don't do it. And yet Manasseh was like, okay, let's go to there. And, and yet that's not what God's good was for him. And so that makes me wonder, what do we entertain or pursue in our lives that works against the knowledge of God for us? That, that's a rhetorical question. Think about it. Chew on it. What is it that we pursue? What is it that we worship? What is it that we build up in our lives and devote ourselves to that maybe the devil and his minions are trying to use those things to get our eyes off of God and onto those things as though they can help us. What are those things? Are they evil? Are they repugnant? Would, if, if we were talking about God's perspective, if God were to look at that thing, what would he think? No one is too lost that they can't be saved because that's the heart of our God towards us. But oftentimes we pursue those evil works that are actually working against us knowing God. So I would submit to you to just think about that for a moment. You can go to the next slide. So no one is too lost that they can't be saved, but sometimes we intentionally ignore God's call to return. So in, in verse 10, it, it specifically says, where is verse 10? It's the other page here. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Now, uh, you know, the words there, I don't know that it, it has a specific connotation, whether that was God sent certain prophets to speak to them, or if God, you know, did one of those things where he appears to them <laughs> and says, hey, knock it off, please return to me. But we do know, if you were to look up on Wikipedia, because I do sometimes, you know, when did Manasseh reign and when did the prophets speak? Uh, because each of the, the books of the prophets from Isaiah to Malachi, um, they they all have a time stamp on them of when they were talking to God's people. And so I think you can go to the next slide there. So Isaiah is one of those prophets, oddly enough. Uh, he, he was a prophet for a long time. And in Isaiah 55, if you were to read the caption, it talks about the compassion of the Lord. And this is a, an invitation that God gave to his people. He said, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked, Manasseh, let the wicked forsake his way. Turn away from it. And the unrighteous man, his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And here's this famous verse. 
For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That's some perspective here. So not only is God so compassionate and merciful and loving that he's saying, seek me, seek me out. I'm here. Just come to me. Return to me. While I can be found, come here, please. Forsake your wicked ways, come. But then not only that, but he points out something really unique that I think we often forget is that his ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. And that's why I wanted to point out evil before, and we don't have time today to unpack like the whole philosophical problem of evil and all of that today, but it made me wonder, what does God think about evil? Because if he looks at Manasseh's life as a whole from like beginning to end, and we have the snapshot of Manasseh's life and all the high points there, and he says that he did much evil in the eyes of the Lord. That means that God is looking at that and he's making a judgment call. He's describing it as evil. So that means that if we were to look at the things of Manasseh's life, maybe we may not think they're evil, naturally speaking. In our opinions, we may not think that those things are so bad. Like, oh, wow, really, God? is it really that evil? Is it really that bad? I mean, come on. And yet to the Lord, he looks at it and he says evil. He says abomination, repugnant, repulsive. That gives great reason to pause and to think, wow, if God's ways are higher than my ways and his thoughts are higher than my thoughts, then that means I need to see with his eyes and his perspective on what that thing is. So that's why when God looks and he says, you know, uh, omens and fortune tellers, you know, uh, if I really put stock in my fortune cookie, which just gets printed by, by, by a factory, and I'm like, wow, this is the meaning of my life, you know, <laughs> There are some people in the world where that's the case, you know, or, you know, literally, if I were to go and pursue, you know, looking at my horoscope and to say, you know, what does my future hold based on the stars and the whatever, that's dangerous territory. Um, that's not good. That's not God's good for you. And it's not God's good for me. So you can go to the next slide. This makes me wonder. So that picture, it's, uh, I think it's a famous painting because it came up on Google. Uh, but it's a, a, it's a painting of the prodigal son. And we're not going to go into all of that. I, I think just by mentioning that idea, that culturally we kind of all know that kind of a story. It's kind of proverbial now in our Western culture. But so... The thing about the prodigal son is that the father constantly, without fail, had his arms open for the son to return, waiting for the son, 
waiting for him to come home. If they had had phones in those days, maybe he would have called the son and said, son, why don't you just come home? If, if you know, they had had really good mailing systems, maybe they would have written some letters saying, hey, son, I hear some pretty wild things are going on. How about you just come home? And God is doing that to Manasseh. He's sending his prophets. He's sending the big clarion call saying, hey, Manasseh, check it out, kid. You need to come home. And Manasseh's saying, nope. Kind of like my kids sometimes, they just stick their fingers in their ears and they're like, nope, I'm not going to listen to you. And that's what Manasseh was doing. No one is too lost that they can't be saved, but sometimes we intentionally ignore God's call to return. What in your life have you been ignoring the Lord on? That's a pretty big question. Maybe another thing to consider is what would it mean to you from your perspective if you knew that you were not too far gone or if you were to, to have the thought that maybe your kids weren't too far gone or your spouse or your, your loved one or the, just a person you care about, maybe it's your neighbor down the street, that person is not too lost that they can't be saved. What would it mean to you to know that? Friends, I believe that that's God's heart because he is standing or sitting or, or whatever position. He is just, he's active in having his arms open for his children to return. And so for you and for me, whether that's a loved one, maybe that's just for our own selves, I just want you to know it's not too late for them or for you. And that's good news. You can go to the next slide. So no one is too lost that they can't be saved. And so with humility and repentance, that all leads to redemption. Um, we had learned earlier in the series how, <clears throat> how God promised to Solomon, you know, if they turn, pray to me and turn from their wicked ways, humble themselves and, and turn, repent, um, then I will hear and I will forgive and I will heal. This is a situation where Manasseh royally screws up. Um, it's not good. Uh, and so he ends up getting um, deported from <laughs> Judah and captured and taken to Babylon, which is a foreign country to him, um, full of all the gods and goddesses that he was trying to worship, but yet now he's actually in the middle of all these people, and it's not so good anymore. And, and all of this distress in his life, it leads him to this place of humility, of realizing, I blew it. I messed up. I was foolish. I was wrong. I was worshiping the wrong thing or the wrong person or the wrong fill-in-the-blank. I was not worshiping Yahweh, who's supposed to be my God, you know, I, I, I represent him to these people and like all of this, like I, I, I'm this leader of his people 
And so for Manasseh, he comes to this place of real, genuine humility where he realizes, wow, I'm out of my depth. I should not have been worshiping these other gods. They're not really God like my God is. And so he cries out to the Lord. He humbles himself greatly. I love that word, greatly, because it doesn't give us all the nitty-gritty details. It just says it was significant in how he humbled himself, and he repented. And as we would read on, it, it shows how he then, in response to this, this moment with the Lord, he tore down the altars. He, he tore down the idols. He removed all of that. He threw it away, all for the sake of devoting himself now to his God, Yahweh. And so, I don't really have an illustration point. I mean, I have this picture up here, but that's more just to demonstrate the point of how God is reaching out for us. Are we reaching out for him? And with Manasseh, he did. He reached out to the Lord and in great humility and repentance. And then we get to see a snapshot of his redeemed life where he, he made good on his, his commitment to the Lord. He made sure that all the people were no longer going to worship the Baals or the sun and the moon and the stars and fill in the blank evil, that they would worship the Lord. Now, he didn't take away the high places. People still offered sacrifices there. And so that was something that got corrected later on when Josiah, his grandson, became king. But this great redemption, this great salvation for this man, it proves to us that no one's too lost. You know, just really quick. So there's kind of the two ends of the spectrum. When we think about how bad a person is, um, so either when we're thinking about how good a person is, we often attribute someone like Mother Teresa. Um, And we say, wasn't she such a great woman? She was fantastic. Well, I'm I'm no Mother Teresa, but I think I'm doing okay. Then on the other end of the spectrum, we say, well, I'm not Hitler. (laughs) It always goes to Hitler. I'm not Hitler, um, but I think I'm doing okay. And yet, on all of the spectrum and everyone in between, no one is righteous. And we all need salvation. And I believe, and you can disagree with me, and that's okay, but someone as wicked and evil as Hitler, maybe as wicked and evil as Manasseh, if we could make that kind of comparison of like, not good, bad, evil, that that kind of a person, if they were genuine in their, their humility and their repentance, they could cry out to the Lord and he would hear them and he would respond. Similarly, someone as great of a woman and a servant as Mother Teresa was, who had her own issues going on, she could humble herself and pray to the Lord and reach out 
and say, Lord, I need you. I messed up. Will you come? I've been so foolish. Please save me. And he would. Just like with you, wherever you are on that spectrum, God can save you. And for many of you, I know that he has. And I'm so grateful for that. I also know that there are people in our lives who are not saved at the moment. They, they're pursuing all, all manner of evil in, in their different ways. And yet, no one is too lost that they can't be saved. So, with our closing thought and moment, um, let's pray. And then I'm going to sing a song over us um, because I think it's pretty fitting um, for our, just as a capstone to our series. Um, I don't have the words up there. I'm sorry, Richard. <laughs> and I'm sorry to all of you, but um, as, as the words of the song and the music kind of comes uh, and, and washes over this place, um, I would just invite you to pray and to have an honest heart-to-heart -heart with the Lord. Maybe ask Him, God, Holy Spirit, are there things in my life that I've been messing with that maybe you think are evil? Can you show those to me? I want to repent of those things. I want to get right with you. I want to humble myself before you. Or maybe you're doing okay, but you still need that reassurance of God's love and His acceptance of you today, because maybe you're on the right path, but you still have memories of the way life was before. So, let's pray.